This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. She expressed little remorse for killing seven men between 1989 and 1990. So why did Eileen Warnos, the so-called damsel of death, act to speed up her own execution? If you enjoy these episodes, follow the series Female Criminals today. Don't miss the stories of women who changed history for the bloodier. New episodes air every Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Seven men, each shot multiple times, each found dead by the side of the road in a different Florida county. Police didn't know if they were looking at seven separate homicides or if they were dealing with a serial killer. And they wouldn't until they found evidence in an unlikely place, the scene of a car crash. With the help of a handprint off a murdered man's car, they were able to trace the stolen vehicle to Eileen Warnos, a woman who would come to be known as America's first female serial killer during her 1992 trial. Warnos lived a difficult life as a sex worker along the highways to support herself and her girlfriend. And she claimed that she had killed all seven men in self-defense. But was that the real reason? Or was there a more sinister motive behind her murders? There's no chance of this in keeping me alive. Are you thinking I kill again? I have hate crawling through my system. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. And this is Female Criminals, a podcast that highlights the most fascinating, gruesome, and unbelievable crimes committed by women. 
You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Eileen Carol Warnos has been called many things. A feminist hero, a victim of circumstance, the damsel of death. Most people, however, know her simply as a serial killer who murdered men while hitchhiking and engaging in sex work along the Florida highways. However, was Eileen born a cold-blooded killer? Or did her incredibly difficult life mold her into one? Her mother, Diane Warnos, was 14 years old when she eloped with 17-year-old Leo Dale Pittman on June 3, 1954. The young couple had a tumultuous relationship from the very beginning. They fought constantly, and sometimes Leo would leave for days. The contention between the two only worsened when they had their son, Keith, in 1955, less than a year after getting married. Sometime during the first year of Keith's life, Leo was diagnosed with schizophrenia, a chronic mental disorder that can affect a person's ability to think clearly, manage his or her emotions, and relate to others. Vanessa isn't a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. In December 1955, Diane declared that she was done with Leo. Even though she was seven months pregnant with Eileen, Diane filed for divorce. During this time, Leo was also charged with sexually assaulting a child. We don't know if the divorce came before or after Leo was imprisoned. He attempted to escape jail by joining the military, but he was eventually sent to prison. He was not present when Diane gave birth on Leap Day, February 29, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan. Her father's absence was only the beginning of the challenges little Eileen would face in her life. At the time of Eileen's birth, Diane was only 16 years old and ill-equipped to take care of two babies. She often neglected her maternal duties, leaving Keith and Eileen home alone in their cribs while she went out on dates or spent time with friends. But by January 1960, Diane was done with motherhood for good. Diane abandoned her children, leaving Keith and Eileen with her parents just before Eileen's fourth birthday. This rocky start in life could have been the source for many of her problems later in life. So for children to develop into well-adjusted adults, their basic needs for comfort, affection, and nurturing must be met. These things help children learn to form healthy attachments and establish relationships with the people around them. Without her parents around to show Eileen affection, she never learned those things. Right, and if children are denied basic emotional support, they may develop a reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. This is a psychological condition in which neglected children struggle to form appropriate emotional relationships. For example, toddlers with RAD may not reach out when they're picked up. 
older children with RAD may not engage with their peers or show interest in playing interactive games. Children who do not receive counseling for RAD may never find healthy outlets for their emotions. It sounds like untreated cases of RAD could lead to serious problems later in life. In extreme cases, children who grow up with RAD could become violent towards animals or other people. Because Eileen's early childhood was unstable and she received little affection from her mother, it's possible that she developed an attachment disorder that followed her into adulthood, which could have made her more prone to emotional outbursts. When Eileen's grandparents took her and Keith in, the children should have had the chance to get the love and affection they craved. Unfortunately for Eileen and her brother, life with their grandparents came with its own set of new challenges. Lori and Britta Wernos, Diane's parents, were strict, no-nonsense Finnish Americans. The family also did not have much money, and both Lori and Britta drank heavily. It left no money for things like toys or new clothes. Yet even with their financial constraints, the Warnoses legally adopted Keith and Eileen in March of 1960, two months after Diane left. Keith was five and Eileen had just turned four. They moved to the Warnos home in Troy, Michigan, where the couple was raising their own young children, Barry and Lori. Eileen and Keith were told that Lori and Britta were their biological parents and Barry and Lori were their brother and sister. They were young enough to believe the lie, but the day-to-day adjustments took time. Eileen and her adoptive sister, Lori, did not get along. They bickered over toys and clothes. Her adoptive brother, Barry, all but ignored Eileen and Keith. Though the children now had a permanent residence and guardians, their situation was far from improved. Britta and Lori were only slightly better at caring for children than Diane had been. Eileen and Keith often were left unsupervised, a fact that nearly got Eileen killed when she was six years old. One afternoon in 1962, while Britta and Lori slept in drunken stupors, Keith and Eileen searched for a way to entertain themselves. They found matches and lighter fluid and set a series of small fires. It was the most fun they'd had in weeks. Eventually, the pair set a fire that was too big for small children to maintain. Keith slipped away unscathed to grab an adult, but Eileen wasn't so lucky. She was badly burned. The incident left her with permanent scars on her face. Instead of consoling the already wounded child, Lori beat Eileen and her brother for starting the fire. Britta did nothing to stop this beating or any future beating. She made it clear that she disliked Eileen and Keith. In her eyes, they were another burden brought on by their irresponsible oldest daughter. If either of her grandchildren misbehaved, Britta, too, beat them viciously. At Christmas, Diane would sometimes send gifts to Eileen and Keith. It was really the only way she remained in touch with her children. However, when Diane did send something, Britta took it away. Their grandfather, Lori, was no better. In fact, he was extremely abusive. Eileen's aunt, Lori, recounted a time when her father, Lori, forced Eileen and Keith to watch as he drowned a cat. Lori was also sexually abusive. Diane said that he had married Leo Dale Pittman just to get out of her father's house and away from his sexual advances. 
Diane's lack of concern for her children is evident in the fact that she was willing to leave them with her former abuser. It was not long after the children moved in that Lori shifted the focus of his abuse to Eileen. Eileen later said that, when she was around nine years old, her grandfather made her strip while he beat her. This became a regular occurrence. If Eileen upset her grandparents, Lori called Eileen into his room, made her get naked, and beat her. According to Eileen, the physical abuse slowly evolved into molestation and then rape. Eileen said that Lori also invited his friends over to assault her, and that he encouraged Keith to do so as well. Though Keith never commented on the matter, those closest to the family were adamant that he never raped his sister. Eileen herself went back and forth on this accusation. As an adult, Eileen displayed many of the psychological symptoms of a person who had experienced childhood sexual trauma. According to Dr. Suzanne Babel, some adults who were sexually abused as children can display a mistrust of other adults, unusually aggressive behavior, and neurotic reactions. Some of these adults may also have difficulty relating to other people outside of a sexual interaction, a fact that sometimes can lead some sexual abuse victims into sex work. These were all true of Eileen by the time she became an adult. But this trauma also affected her as a child. Without question, Eileen's sexual abuse is likely what led her to use sex as a leverage for power, She didn't have much money or many friends, but she quickly discovered that she could get both of those things, however briefly, if she offered sex in exchange. Therefore, by age 11, Eileen was engaging in transactional sex with boys in her neighborhood. The 11 to 13-year-old boys who paid her for sex nicknamed her the cigarette pig, exploiting her desire for cigarettes, food, and other things her grandparents couldn't afford. She didn't have many friends in school, but engaging her neighbors and classmates in sexual activity allowed Eileen to feel connected to someone, even briefly. Eileen once said, quote, People always look down their noses at hookers. Never give you a chance because they think you took the easy way out, when no one would imagine the willpower it took to do what we do. Walking the streets, night after night, taking the hits and still getting back up, end quote. And the hits kept coming for Eileen. In 1968, the year Eileen turned 12, she found out that Lori and Britta were her grandparents and not her actual parents. This shook Eileen deeply. It was the first time she realized her mother abandoned her and the father she never met was a criminal. It made her hate her grandparents, and she spent even more time having transactional sex in the woods near their home. In 1969, the family received word that Leo Dale Pittman, Eileen's father, had hanged himself in prison. The news didn't seem to affect Eileen in any way. After all, she never met her real father and struggled to feel attachments to other people. At 13, She began experimenting with alcohol, marijuana, and mescaline to escape the harsh realities of her daily life. It wasn't long before her hard life caught up with her. In 1970, 14-year-old Eileen found out she was pregnant. 
No one was sure who fathered the child. Eileen sometimes believed it was her grandfather and sometimes believed it was her brother. However, in the documentary Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer, Eileen's childhood friend, Don Botkins, confessed her belief that a local pedophile named Chief was responsible for Eileen's pregnancy. Don said the older man raped Eileen while she was drunk. Embarrassed by the attention Eileen's pregnancy brought on their family, Britta and Lori sent their granddaughter away to a boarding home for unwed mothers. Eileen endured the pregnancy in an unfamiliar environment with people she didn't know. The experience must have been incredibly isolating. On March 23, 1971, Eileen gave birth to her son, Keith, whom she named after her brother. She knew she was not ready for motherhood, and she gave the infant up for adoption. When Eileen returned from giving birth, she found it extremely difficult to face home life. Her peers whispered about her behind her back, and no one associated with her. Still, her grandmother forced her to continue going to school. This confluence of events was most likely what led Eileen down the path to depression. The National Institutes of Health reported that teenage mothers are more susceptible to mental health issues than adult mothers because the social, physical, and emotional stresses weigh more heavily on younger people. In Eileen's mind, the pregnancy was the reason no one liked her, and those thoughts were Eileen's first steps down a dark path. Things once again got worse for Eileen when Britta died of liver failure in late 1971. Lori, who always hated Diane's children, did not hesitate to throw Eileen and Keith out of his house before his wife's funeral. The 15- and 16-year-old siblings were supposed to become wards of the state, but instead of going to a group home or entering foster care, Eileen ran away and moved into the woods behind her grandparents' home. Other than Don Botkins, who we mentioned earlier, Eileen had no friends. She had no adult family other than her grandfather, and she had no money. Moreover, it was late fall in Michigan. At 15 years old, Eileen needed to find a way to survive the harsh northern winter. But Eileen was resourceful. When Eileen wasn't in school, she engaged in sex work to earn money to support herself. In an interview with Broadley, Dawn said, quote, She would go to bed with them because she didn't have anything. It was her way of getting a little bit of money and some cigarettes. I mean, she did maybe get to spend the night at their house and take a shower and stuff like that, end quote. Eileen made just enough money for food and basic supplies, and she took shelter in abandoned cars when she couldn't find a John to stay with. All of these factors made it an extremely stressful time in Eileen's life. This stress eventually became too much to handle. Eileen developed a tendency to lash out at those around her, a trait that is not uncommon in homeless teens. According to the Family Housing Fund's report entitled Homelessness and Its Effect on Children, 36% of homeless children between the ages of 6 and 17 demonstrate delinquent or aggressive behavior. Eileen's rage found its outlet through her sources of income, her johns. She didn't have a lot of power over her situation, but she was not one to be taken advantage of. If any man tried to underpay her, Eileen screamed at and threatened him until they paid her what she was owed. 
Her hair-trigger temper also made it impossible for her to make friends, aside from Dawn. Dawn said the other kids in town were rotten to Eileen. When they weren't making fun of her, they shunned her. Still, Eileen continued to go to school despite her poor grades and her hatred for the place. She told her friend Dawn that at least when she was at school, she was warm. However, halfway through her freshman year, around 1971, the principal caught 15-year-old Eileen with nearly four ounces of Acapulco Gold, a popular strain of marijuana in the 1960s and 70s. When the principal told Eileen to report to his office, she replied, quote, I ain't reporting nowhere. Matter of fact, I quit school, end quote. True to her word, she immediately dropped out of school for good. With nothing to tie her to Michigan, she began to spend her life on the road, setting her on the eventual path to murder. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, our story continues. At age 18, in 1974, Eileen Warnos became a full-time sex worker after leaving school. She would hitchhike up and down the nearby highway to pick up clients. Because of her drifter lifestyle, it isn't clear when she left Michigan for the first time. But in 1974, Eileen was living a rowdy lifestyle in Colorado. She was drinking heavily, and it wasn't long before she was arrested for driving under the influence. She also received charges for firing a weapon from a moving vehicle. However, she failed to show up for her trial, and a warrant was put out for her arrest. Eileen was beginning to show the signs of antisocial personality disorder, something she was formally diagnosed with during her murder trial years later. The Mayo Clinic defines antisocial personality disorder as a mental condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. People with this disorder tend to ignore potential negative consequences, have callous personalities, have trouble with law enforcement, and often display hostile behavior. Between the arrest warrant and her less-than-friendly relationship with the police, Colorado had lost its appeal for Eileen. She knew she needed to get out of the state fast, so she hitched a ride to Florida, where she met 69-year-old Louis Gratz Fell. Fell was a wealthy socialite in the area. He was also the president of the Yacht Club. 
He and Eileen could not have been more opposite, and yet Fell was enamored by Eileen. He courted her for a brief period, and in 1976, when Eileen was 20, the two were married. Fell was extremely proud to show off his new young wife. He even announced their marriage in the society pages. This could have been a major turning point in Eileen's life. After all, Fell was one of the first people to treat Eileen with compassion. He also had the means to give her a home off the streets and provide for her. Given everything Eileen went through in her youth, life with Fell may have seemed like a reprieve. But 1976 was a major turning point in Eileen's life for all the wrong reasons. To begin, her marriage to Fell would fall apart even faster than it came together. Childhood memories of abandonment and abuse plagued her, making it difficult for Eileen to trust anyone, even if they meant well. Moreover, she was only 20 years old. She didn't want to spend her days living like a retiree. She often disappeared to a local bar, where she got drunk and started fights with the locals. When Fell confronted her about her behavior a few weeks after their 1976 wedding, Eileen attacked him with his own cane. The final straw came when Eileen was arrested for attacking a bar patron with a pool stick and sent to jail. Fell saw this as a personal disgrace. He couldn't be with someone who behaved so wildly when the people he associated with were cultured and refined. Fell filed a restraining order against Eileen. Also in 1976, Eileen received word that her 21-year-old brother, Keith, was dying of throat cancer. She decided it was time to return to Michigan. However, life back home wasn't what Eileen expected. Her grandfather committed suicide in March that year, and Keith was in the hospital. It wasn't long before she fell back into her old patterns of trading sex for money, drugs, and alcohol. Dr. Nigel Barber's theory on how trauma resets human personalities does a good job of explaining Eileen's behavior at this point in her story. Dr. Barber proposed that the human brain's easiest defense against tragedy is avoidance, and individuals who have not learned how to cope with challenging situations properly are more likely to engage in avoidance behaviors, such as drug and alcohol abuse. This is clear when we examine how Eileen reacted to the multiple tragedies in her life at that time. She chose to lose herself in her old habits because the drugs, sex, and alcohol were all ways to escape reality. Even if she found some sense of comfort in the familiarity of being home in Michigan, going back to her old habits agitated Eileen. She was drinking heavily and fighting more frequently. On July 14, 1976, Eileen was involved in a particularly rough bar fight. After throwing a cue ball at the bartender's head, she was arrested for assault and disturbing the peace. Unfortunately, on July 17th, 21-year-old Keith died while she was in jail. Eileen never got to say goodbye to her brother. Though Keith was diagnosed with throat cancer several years before, Eileen didn't grasp the reality of her brother's situation until the end. To her, his passing was unexpected. 
According to the National Institutes of Health, the unexpected death of a loved one can cause the onset of emotional disorders, including manic episodes and alcohol abuse. To add to Eileen's already fragile state of mind, just four days after Keith's death, Fell and Eileen officially annulled their nine-week marriage on July 21st. In the span of eight days in July 1976, Eileen was arrested, lost her only sibling, and ended her marriage. But just when things seemed to have hit rock bottom, Eileen was informed that Keith left his $10,000 life insurance policy payout to her. With inflation, that money equals nearly $45,000 today. Eileen could have taken that gift from her brother and put her life on track, but she was stuck in a self-destructive cycle. Dr. Peggy Lee Wupperman says that children who grow up in an adverse environment are more likely to engage in self-destructive behaviors as a way to find satisfaction or relief. Dr. Wupperman explains that many people who grew up in adverse environments were never taught to express emotion or deal with their feelings. I imagine that must cause a lot of stress and anxiety for those people as adults. So much so that those stuck in a self-destructive cycle turn to behaviors like excessive drinking and smoking, self-harm, drug abuse, binge eating, and chronic avoidance to cope. Eileen knew she didn't fit in with most people, and her delinquent behavior was a distraction from the stress that knowledge caused her. She drank excessively and spent her money on drugs. In August 1976, the police fined her for drunk driving. Eileen used part of her brother's life insurance to pay the fine. She used the rest to buy a new car, only to wreck it shortly after buying it. By September, just one month later, the $10,000 was gone, and Eileen was back to sex work to make a living. Eileen resumed her drifter lifestyle. Between 1976 and 1980, Eileen hitchhiked across the country and survived as a sex worker. In 1981, at 25, she made her way back to Florida. Eileen would never leave the state again, and she was in and out of various prisons in Florida until the day she died. It began on May 20th, 1981, when the police arrested Eileen for the armed robbery of a local convenience store. She had stolen two packs of cigarettes and $35 at gunpoint. She remained in jail until her trial on May 4th, 1982, when she was sentenced to 13 months in prison. Eileen did her time quietly and was released on June 30, 1983, when she was 27. However, from that day, her crimes gradually became more aggressive. Eileen was out of prison less than a year before she was arrested again on May 1, 1984, in Key West for attempted check forgery. That year, she also met her first girlfriend. She fell in love with a woman named Tony, whom she mentions briefly several times in her letters to Don Botkins. According to Eileen, she and Tony built a successful power washing company together before Tony abandoned 28-year-old Eileen out of the blue one day, taking all her money and leaving her with a $400 phone bill at the motel where the couple was living together. Eileen used what little money she'd kept to herself to cover the costs and returned to sex work to make a living. 
Tony's betrayal sent Eileen on a crime spree. As Dr. Leon F. Seltzer described, when people are hurt, they feel powerless. Most people will react with emotions that will help them take some of that power back. The most common reaction to pain is anger, and Eileen had plenty of it. Over the next two years, she was arrested or jailed three more times. It was during one of these drunken nights that she met 24-year-old Tyra Moore in Daytona, Florida. Tyra, or Ty as she preferred to be called, was born in 1962 and moved to Florida from Cadiz, Ohio, after finishing vocational school in the mid-1980s. After this charge, 30-year-old Eileen settled down a little. She returned to a life as a sex worker along the highway to make ends meet, but she quit committing other petty crimes. Eileen spent most of her days in 1986 with Johns, and at night she went out drinking. Tyria, or Ty, as she preferred to be called, was born in 1962 and moved to Florida from Cadiz, Ohio, after finishing vocational school in the mid-1980s. She worked as a hotel maid around Daytona, and she had very little money to her name. What little she did make went to her evenings in gay bars around Daytona. It was in one of these venues that Ty met Eileen for the first time. In an interview with Ty recounted the night she met Eileen at the Zodiac Bar in South Daytona. She said, quote, She was in there alone. I was in there alone. We started a conversation and she went home with me that night. End quote. In Eileen's mind, it was love at first sight. Ty was the first person in her life to show interest in Eileen without self-serving motives. Ty was also the only one who offered Eileen a safe, nurturing relationship. When Ty invited Eileen back to the home where she was staying, it was the first time in nearly 15 years that Eileen experienced anything remotely domestic. They watched television together, they cuddled, they talked. Ty even affectionately nicknamed Eileen Lee. Later, Ty said it felt more like they were sisters than lovers. Eileen did not agree. During her trial, Eileen described how Ty made her feel, quote, It was love beyond the imaginable, earthly. Words cannot describe how I felt about Tyra. I thought Tyra must be taken care of, end quote. Eileen wanted to hang on to the feelings of love, safety, and comfort she felt that first night. But she knew she needed to provide for them both. Eileen, never one to care what people thought of her, was determined to prove her worth to Ty. Eileen's manic commitment to Ty was something Dr. Susan Krauss Whitbourne called an insecure anxiety attachment. Dr. Krauss Whitbourne explained that all adults develop an attachment style. This is how adults interact with their romantic partners, and they're often determined by a person's childhood relationship with his or her parents. If a child was abandoned or neglected, she may form anxiety attachments with her partner. In this type of relationship, the person constantly worries that her partner will leave her. She becomes overly dependent on affection and validation from her partner. Ty was Eileen's first loving relationship, and Eileen was going to do whatever it took to keep her around. 
Eileen would sometimes spend entire days engaging in sex work along the highway just so she and Ty could afford a motel room. Eileen once said, quote, If I made $130, I'd take $30 and give Ty the rest to pay the bills, end quote. Ty would tell Eileen, quote, Get a motel with a swimming pool because it's so boring, so boring here all day long, end quote. Eileen said she was bringing home about $300 every two weeks, and most of it went to keeping Ty happy. Ty, however, told a different story. She said she did not approve of Eileen's line of work. In the interview with Biography, she said, quote, Once I found out she was prostituting, I tried everything I could to have her stop doing that. For one, it's not safe, and then I did care about her, but she never gave it up, end quote. Eileen didn't know another way to make money, but she was desperate to give Ty a good life. They moved around Daytona frequently, living out of motel rooms and whatever other lodgings they could find. Other times they could afford a small apartment or a trailer for a while. Eileen sometimes threatened landlords to buy the couple a few extra days in a place. She did whatever she had to to keep a roof over their heads. As much as Ty hated that Eileen was a sex worker, she had grown comfortable living off her girlfriend's earnings. She took a don't-ask-don't-tell approach when Eileen brought home money. This lasted until November 30, 1989, three months before Eileen's 34th birthday and three years into their relationship. That was the day Eileen killed Richard Mallory, the first of her seven victims. Mallory was a 51-year-old resident of Clearwater, Florida. He ran an electronics store, and in his spare time, he cruised Interstate 75, or local strip clubs, looking for prostitutes to solicit. On November 30th, he spotted Eileen soliciting work on the side of the road, and he picked her up. In her testimony, Eileen made it clear that she and Mallory started the conversation by discussing the terms of their transaction. However, when Mallory let her into the car, Eileen claimed things took a dark turn. She stated that Mallory beat her up and attempted to rape her so that he wouldn't have to pay for her services. Though it wasn't brought up in Eileen's trial, authorities discovered that Richard Mallory recently filed for bankruptcy and had a criminal record which contained previous allegations of assault. He had even spent time in a mental institution on the charge of attempted rape. Eileen testified that Mallory was out of control, and she was scared for her life. As he was beating her and preparing to rape her, she pulled out her 22 caliber pistol and shot him three times in the chest. Two of those shots punctured his lungs, and Eileen watched as Mallory bled to death. She then moved his body to the passenger seat and drove to a wooded area over the interstate in Volusia County. There, she stripped Mallory of his clothes, stole his money, and left in his Cadillac. Eileen returned home driving the Cadillac. When Ty questioned where she got the car, Eileen couldn't answer. She was pale and badly shaken. Ty was engrossed in one of her favorite TV shows and didn't think much about Eileen's odd behavior. Finally, Eileen sat down next to her and said, quote, I have something to tell you. 
I shot and killed a man today. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now back to our story. After she heard Eileen Warnos's account of the murder of Richard Mallory, Eileen's girlfriend Ty immediately said that she didn't want to know anymore. Ty could have gone to the police that night in 1989, but unfortunately, she did not. She saw how much money Eileen brought home, and she kept quiet. To this day, she asserts that it was her love for Eileen that kept her from turning her partner in to the authorities. However, Many speculate that she was too accustomed to living off the income Eileen brought in, and she didn't want to lose that. Eileen knew that keeping the car put her and Ty in danger from the police. So she drove it several miles from where she left Mallory's body and dumped it. The car was discovered several days later, but Mallory's body wasn't found until December 13, 1989, two weeks after his untimely death. The knowledge of the murder put serious stress on their relationship. It caused Eileen and Ty to behave more passive-aggressively toward one another. They developed a sweep-it-under-the-rug approach to disagreements because they were too codependent to leave one another. Licensed clinical social worker Linda Esposito defined a codependent relationship as when two people with dysfunctional personality traits form or maintain relationships that are one-sided, emotionally destructive, and or abusive. Esposito outlines six criteria for identifying codependent relationships. The first criterion states that one or both partners' sense of purpose is driven by a need to make extreme sacrifices to fulfill the other's needs. Eileen and Ty's relationship fits this because of Eileen's willingness to continually face the dangers involved in sex work. The second standard for identifying a codependent relationship is if the couple have a hard time saying no to one another. Eileen rarely denied Ty anything if it was within her power to give it to her. But Ty also qualifies for this criterion. She never left Eileen, even though she found their transient lifestyle exhausting. 
The third and fourth criteria involve one member of the relationship covering for their partner if they struggle with drugs, alcohol, or criminal activity, and constantly worrying about that partner's opinion. Ty was more than willing to keep Eileen's secret regarding the murder of Richard Mallory. And one of Eileen's biggest concerns was making sure Ty was happy. The fifth criterion is that at least one member of the pair must feel trapped. Ty testified that she was often afraid of Eileen's temper. She feared what Eileen might do to her if she sensed that she had the urge to leave. The final standard for identifying a codependent relationship is that a couple must avoid arguments. This was certainly true of Eileen and Ty. Ever since the night when Eileen confessed and Ty begged her not to tell her anymore, the couple walked on eggshells around each other. They believed that if they pretended everything was fine, it would be. However, Eileen was still a murderer. She was simply in her cooling-off period, or a length of time when a killer resumes his or her daily life and tries to conform to societal norms while dealing with the emotional aftermath of his or her crimes. Eileen went back to sex work, and Ty occasionally found maid work, but they were living under a false sense of normalcy. Sometime in May 1990, six months after her first murder, Eileen committed her next one. Eileen testified that she was working the highway when she was picked up by David Spears, a 43-year-old construction worker from Winter Garden, Florida. Eileen claimed that Spears seemed friendly enough at first, but then he tried to rape her. Eileen said, quote, I thought, what the hell you think you're doing, dude, you know? You know, I'm going to kill you because you were trying to do whatever you could with me. And I shot him through the door, and then he kind of went back. And I went right through to the driver's side and shot him again, and he fell back. And that's all I remember on that one. End quote. Eileen never gave up the exact date of Spears' murder, but the man had been missing for several weeks by the time his nude body was found. Unlike Richard Mallory, Everything in Spears' background made him seem like a gentle, kind man. His friends all described him as practical, predictable, honest, and hardworking. He was even helping his ex-wife with some of her bills because he didn't want her to feel financially unstable. He didn't strike anyone who knew him as a potential rapist. On May 31, 1990, one day before police found Spears' body off Florida State Road 19, Eileen struck again. This third murder officially made Eileen a serial killer under the FBI's definition for the crime. Until Eileen's trial, it was difficult for people to imagine a female serial killer. When most people heard the term, they thought of murderers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Richard Ramirez. Few people associated females with serial killing, but Eileen was never one to fit in anyone's mold. In fact, she didn't even fit the profile for a typical female serial killer. According to a study conducted by Eric Hickey, a criminologist at Fresno State, most female serial killers murder between 7 to 10 victims. They're mostly middle and upper class, educated, and white. On average, female serial killers tend to murder people that they know, meaning family members, neighbors, or friends. Their victims are rarely strangers. 
Hickey also determined that female serial killers were typically in traditional, monogamous relationships and worked in a nurturing field, such as child care or nursing. Eileen came from a lower-class family. She was undereducated and made money as a sex worker. All of her victims were complete strangers to her. This discord with traditional expectations is all part of what makes Eileen so fascinating to true crime enthusiasts, even today. It's also important to note that Eileen fell into the disorganized serial killer classification. The FBI splits serial killers into an organized-disorganized dichotomy. Disorganized serial killers are usually of below-average intelligence and rarely plan their murders. They act with sudden violence toward their victims, and their crime scenes are often very sloppy. Where organized killers tend to hide the bodies of their victims, disorganized killers make little effort. They often dump the body in haste. Nearly everything about Eileen's crimes so far fit her into the disorganized classification of serial killer. And her next murders would continue that pattern. Charles Karskadden, Eileen's third victim, was a 40-year-old part-time rodeo worker who most people described as a decent man. Unfortunately, his murder was Eileen's most violent. She claimed that when he picked her up on May 21, 1990, she climbed in the back seat, rode with him a short distance, and then shot him. She then climbed out of the car and kept shooting into his body. Eileen left Karskadin's torso riddled with bullets. In fact, his chest and stomach were struck nine times with bullets from the 22. Locals in Pasco County discovered Karskadin's body on June 6, 1990. Eileen was now entering what some professionals call the serial killer's berserker phase. During this part of a serial killer's career, he or she leaves the least amount of time between the murders committed. It's during this phase that a serial killer is most dangerous and most unpredictable. Sometime in mid-June 1990, 34-year-old Eileen found her fourth victim in Peter Sims. 65-year-old Sims was a retired merchant sailor who spent most of his time working with his church in Jupiter, Florida. According to his friends and family, Sims was deeply religious and a true gentleman. He was known to offer rides to hitchhikers as a way to help his fellow man. When Sims picked Eileen up, he was on his way out of town to visit his family in Arkansas. He would never complete the trip. Eileen attacked him shortly after getting in his car. When she retold her version of Sims' murder, Eileen said, quote, He tried to get the gun from me and stuff. We were struggling with the gun and everything else, and a couple of bullets shot up in the air, and finally I ripped it away and I had the gun in my left hand, and I put it back in my right hand and I shot him immediately, end quote. To this day, no one's sure what Eileen did with Sims' body and she never disclosed its location. She did, however, steal Sims' car, some of his money, and a few of his personal effects. Taking Sims' 1988 Pontiac Sunbird was the beginning of the end for Eileen. Eileen pawned off Sims' personal items for extra cash, but she and Ty kept the car for a brief time. 
They drove it around until July 4, 1990, when Eileen and Ty accidentally ran the car off the road in a drunk driving accident. The two women were driving near Orange Springs, Florida, when they wrecked on the side of the road. Both Eileen and Ty threw down their beer cans and scrambled into the nearby forest. Though both women tried to remain inconspicuous, there were several witnesses who saw them abandon the car. When police were called to investigate, the witnesses gave detailed descriptions of both Eileen and Ty. A nationwide media campaign was started to find the two women based on the sketches provided by the witnesses. Police believed that whomever had Sim's car was also responsible for his disappearance. Throughout July, local law enforcement received dozens of calls identifying the suspects as Eileen and Ty. Police then discovered that the palm print they had retrieved from the door of the car during the inspection belonged to Eileen. When Eileen and Ty found out that the police were on to them, Eileen sent Ty to go live with her sister in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Ty had expressed her fear of getting caught up in Eileen's murder charges, so Eileen sent her away with the hope that she would not be involved. Once again, Eileen was putting Ty's well-being above her own. Still, Ty's departure sent Eileen over the edge. The only person Eileen cared about was away, and Eileen felt like she had nothing to lose. A few weeks after Ty left town, Eileen killed for the fifth time. That victim's name was Eugene Troy Burris. Burris was a 50-year-old sausage salesman from Ocala, Florida. The people in his community described him as a hard-working man who was greatly respected by his peers. They thought it was odd when he disappeared. And on July 31, 1990, Burris was officially reported missing. Five days later, on August 4th, his body was found in a wooded area just off of State Road 19. He had been killed by two gunshot wounds to the torso. During her testimony, Eileen couldn't recall many details from Burris's murder. When questioned about Burris's murder in her trial, Eileen said, quote, I think I shot him right in the stomach or something, end quote. Eileen had poor recollection of the murders she committed after Ty left. She was likely experiencing what Dr. Lawrence Wilson calls brain fog, or feelings of confusion and lack of mental clarity. Brain fog reduces a person's ability to think clearly and can cause forgetfulness, emotional detachment, and anxiety. Dr. Wilson explains that brain fog is often the result of unresolved emotional conflict or suppressed trauma. The major causes for Eileen's brain fog could have been her repression of the previous murders and her separation from Ty. Ty's departure seemed to be the breaking point for Eileen. Even though she knew the police were closing in on her, she did not stop killing. Her last two kills, Charles Dick Humphreys and Walter Gino Antonio, happened within a month of each other. Humphreys, Eileen's sixth victim, was a 56-year-old man with a long history of service. He was a retired Air Force major, a former chief of police, and a former state child abuse investigator. He dedicated his whole career to serving and protecting others. He stopped to pick Eileen up to give her a ride sometime in early September 1990, and that act was his last good deed. Humphrey's body was found on September 11, 1990. 
he had been shot six times in his head and torso. Just a little over a month later, Eileen murdered her seventh and final victim, Walter Gino Antonio. Antonio was a well-liked member of his community. He worked several different jobs, including trucker, part-time security guard, and police reservist. Just like most of Eileen's other victims, Antonio picked Eileen up to offer her a ride. The pair did not make it very far before Eileen attacked. However, Antonio was well-trained. He fought back against Eileen. At some point, he managed to pull the car over and tried to flee on foot. When Eileen spoke of Antonio's murder, she said, quote, When we were struggling with the gun and everything else, again, he fell to the ground, and he started to run back, run away. And I shot him in the back, right in the back, end quote. Antonio's body was discovered in Dixie County on November 19, 1990. Police discovered that he had been shot four times with a 22 caliber pistol, just like the rest of Eileen's victims. After Antonio's car was found five days later, police finally saw the pattern between the Florida Highway murders. All of the victims were male. All of them were killed with a 22 caliber gun and all of their cars were found abandoned, miles from where their bodies were found. Police then linked these killings to the disappearance of Peter Sims and the palm print they found on his car. All of their connections pointed them to one person, identified as Eileen Warnos. Police now had to find a woman with no address, no place of business, and no social connections. They knew she was capable of killing again, and they had to try and catch her before she did. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll discuss Eileen's capture, her highly publicized trial, and her eventual execution. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter as at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. We hope you'll join us next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 